Support for WABE comes from the Community Foundation for Greater Atlanta. You can go beyond giving to impact. Learn more at cfgreateratlanta.org. I'm Erlon Woods. I'm Nigel Poor. We're the hosts and creators of Ear Hustle from PRX's Radiotopia. Ear Hustle is a show about life inside prison, but it's not your typical prison podcast. In this next season, we've got stories about the objects people keep inside their prison cells. About residents in a women's prison who say they want to stay there. And the most beautiful prison garden. Erlon, I will never forget it. Ear Hustle. Stories about life on the inside, told by those who live it. Find Ear Hustle wherever you get your podcasts. From WABE in Atlanta, welcome to this Tuesday edition of Closer Look. I'm Rose Scott. The University of Georgia has an 11-step, five-year diversity and inclusive excellence plan. But what does that include? We are looking back and investigating and understanding that there are historic injustices and wrongs as we look forward and talk about the identity of our community, looking at the demographics, the numbers, who has access to the University of Georgia, that we have to recognize that history. I'll speak with Dr. Michelle Cook, Vice Provost for Diversity and Inclusion and Strategic University Initiatives at the school. That and more coming up. But first, from our WABE newsroom, Atlanta Police Chief Rodney Bryant announced plans to restructure the department after another weekend with multiple violent incidents. Bryant answered questions from the Atlanta City Council yesterday, where he was also confirmed to permanently hold the position he's held on an interim basis since last year. Bryant says he plans to centralize investigations, add more police to the gun assault unit, and create a new domestic violence unit. The city council also approved a $15 million increase for the department's budget that will go towards hiring 150 new officers. Chief Bryant admitted APD is currently 400 officers short of its target goal. In other news, the Atlanta School Board fired back against a resolution the State Board of Education adopted last week. The measure seeks to shape the way schools teach racism and slavery, calling them, quote, deviations from the country's founding principles. Jason Estevez is the APS board chair. In Atlanta Public Schools, students and teachers have the right to study and teach any issue, even controversial ones, that have political, economic, or social significance in an age and developmentally appropriate manner. Estevez went on to say students and teachers have the right to express opinions without fear of retaliation. And a note of disclosure, WABE's broadcast license is held by the Atlanta Board of Education. Finally, it's game two in the second round of the NBA playoffs for the Atlanta Hawks. They're up in Philadelphia tonight to play the 76ers in the best of seven series. The winner goes to the Eastern Conference Finals. The Hawks won the first game last Sunday. Mm, Keep soaring, Hawks. This is Closer Look. Support for WABE comes from the Community Foundation for Greater Atlanta. If you love Atlanta, you can invest in the big picture. Learn more at cfgreateratlanta.org. The field of mental health counseling is growing rapidly, and Richmond Graduate University can equip you with everything you need as a licensed professional counselor while integrating your faith into your clinical practice. Programs are offered in Atlanta, Chattanooga, and online. Apply today at richmont.edu. That's R-I-C-H-M-O-N-T dot E-D-U. Closer Look continues now here on 90.1 WABE. This is Atlanta's Choice for NPR. I'm Rose Scott. Diversity, equity, and inclusion, DEI, it's everywhere. Books, initiatives, TED Talks, forums, and conferences. It seems nearly every workplace environment is adopting some type of a DEI platform. Corporations, professional sports teams, nonprofits, churches, hospitals, as well as colleges and universities. Here's a question. What does an effective and actionable DEI plan actually look like? The University of Georgia has a plan. It's an 11-step, five-year diversity and inclusive excellence plan. 
and it was created by UGA's Planning Committee on Diversity and Inclusive Excellence. So back to that question I asked a few moments ago, what does it mean? Joining me now to talk more about UGA's plan and its goals is Dr. Michelle Cook, Vice Provost for Diversity and Inclusion and Strategic University Initiatives at UGA, and she co-chairs UGA's Diversity and Inclusive Excellence Planning Committee. Dr. Cook, thanks so much for taking time. I really appreciate it. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me. Let's begin here. I'm curious, how often have you come across an article or a thought piece on DEI and your reaction was, what? That is not what (laughs) DEI is about. Have you ever had that reaction? Yes, absolutely. And definitely, as you mentioned in the introduction, DEI is everywhere right now. So I am receiving constant emails and inquiries about DEI, including solicitations and, you know, there are new companies starting up that are doing DEI work. And so much of it, I feel, is kind of opportunistic Mm -hmm. as as opposed to being firmly, um, you know, kind of entrenched and ingrained in the literature, current literature and thought and and a lot of innovative and progressive thought around DEI and DEI work. So what are the common misperceptions or quite frankly, what's flat out wrong about what DEI is all about? Let's get that out the way first. So at its core, you know, one of the major misconceptions, and and this is across the board, is that DEI work is something that is precipitated by um, events. And of course, in our nation, we've had some events over the past year that have, you know, I think it has some really positive outcomes in bringing these issues to the forefront. But at the same time, they make it appear that DEI concerns and issues are reactionary, that, you know, when something happens, then we all become woke. And we all start to talk about it in new ways. And then, of course, when, when in that context, you know, it's only a matter of months or maybe a year or so, then you move on to the next thing. Whereas the reality of DEI, if we're going to be truthful about it and who we are as a nation and as a society, DEI work is at the core or needs to be at the core of everything we do, not as a passing fancy, not as something that we all are talking about because we've been disturbed by national events, but something that we all are thinking about in some real ways. So is DEI a concept or an actionable outcome based on the execution? I, I think that it should be an, an uh, you know, an actionable outcome. What I always say is that people start people, and I say people, organizations, institutions start at different places. You've got to start where you are. So, as, so for some individuals, as well as for some organizations, it may it start off like, okay, this is a concept that I've got to begin to wrap my head around. I think one of the things we're seeing is that people, there are many people and organizations that didn't see themselves as part of the DEI conversation. It's like, oh, that's for those people with those titles or with those identities that think about those things. That's not for me. That's not, I'm not a part of that. But the reality is everybody needs to be a part of it. So if you need, if you can start at that point of thinking about actionable outcomes, perfect. But if you need, or your organization needs to start at a, at an earlier beginning point where you need to kind of understand the, the concept or the idea of DEI and what that all means, then that's where you need to start. So someone listening may say, well, Dr. Cook, let's, let's take us through this because my company is talking about DEI initiatives, but where does it begin? Does it just begin with, first of all, saying everyone needs to understand what DEI is all about? We adopt that we're going to be a part of this. And then do you take classes? Do you require your employees and managers to take classes? Is that it? Or does it have to be catered to each individual environment? Yes, absolutely. And I think that you touch on something in that question that is really critical, that it has to be catered to each individual environment. And I am a strong proponent of starting with self. I think that too often DEI work and DEI initiatives, and I get it, I, I understand why, because if you are running a large organization and you need to launch something, you launch it and you, you know, it's, it's typically external facing, like, okay, we're going to count up our, we're going to look at our demographics, and then we're going to set goals about we need to increase the numbers of people here, we need to increase the people who have this identity or that identity, but for, to, for it to be truly impactful, for it to be truly effective, it has to start with the individual. And so I encourage at, at the institution at University of Georgia, when we have these conversations, even if it's for, you know, if we're having a 
a 90 minute conversation, let's spend 20 to 30 minutes talking about self and having people look at where do you as an individual with it, at the workplace, in your own community, at home, what do you think about these things? Where do you see yourself and where do you see yourself contributing? And then build from there. Because otherwise it's always something external, right? It's always something on the outside. And it's something also that I can pick up and put down when, you know, oh, okay, I'm at work. Okay, so let me get in my DEI mind frame because that's what they, the, the CEO has said, we've got to do, oh, now I'm at home. I can drop that. That's not, that's not important at home. But, you know, I think we need to start with the self. So DEI is not a destination. It's a journey. You know, we all have those posters (laughs) about life. (laughs) Yeah. It's the same thing as what you're saying. Exactly. In your role within the University of Georgia as co-chair of the Diversity and Inclusion Excellence Planning Committee, what are you tasked with? Before we get into those top priorities of the plan, but what are you tasked with? So at the University of Georgia, I I sit, I I feel very fortunate because we as an institution with um, our leadership and under under the leadership of our president, um, Jerry Moorhead, we've been working on diversity, equity initiative, uh, inclusive initiatives for years. So we've been doing a lot of this work, but for the purpose of this plan, we were charged as a committee to develop a strategic targeted plan for the institution over the next five years to move our diversity, equity, and and inclusion initiatives forward. The idea is that this is not all that we're going to do around DEI. There's going to be a lot more that's being done, some small initiatives, some large initiatives, but what are we going to do that, that we can say as an institution, these are institutional goals that everyone is going to be pulling in the same direction, that we are going to measure our progress on these goals. We're going to establish benchmarks and we're going to make sure that we are held accountable for our progress and our movement in these specific areas so that we as an institution, we're, we're large community. We're a large organization, but so that we can have a shared understanding, a shared commitment, and a shared set of goals in terms of what we want to accomplish over five years. So that was our real charge. With the shared understanding, I want to get your thoughts on how much acknowledging past issues, wrongdoings, uh, discriminatory practices, racism, other biases, other isms, is that also part of what can be an effective DEI? And I say that because we know that institutions like UGA and not just UGA throughout, not just the South, but throughout the nation and not just in colleges and universities, we know the history of racism and discrimination in this country. Is that a part also when we talk about an effective DEI plan is you need to acknowledge those past wrongdoings. You know, right now we're in a space where depending on whom you ask, Some say it's important. Some say it's not. That's a whole nother show. (laughs) (laughs) I think it, you know, it's it's interesting for the, to to get this question because I'm a historian. That's why. So of course I'm always looking at like where we've been and how that's, how that impacts and how that has gotten us to where we are today. And interesting enough for the University of Georgia, we're celebrating as we are, as we're, you know, rolling out and launching this plan. We're also celebrating in 2021, the 60th anniversary of desegregation of the University of Georgia. So, you know, 1961, January 9th, University of Georgia. Um, was, you know, welcomed in some ways, um, its first to um, African-American students to campus. Um, and so, so for us as an institution, we are looking back and, and investigating and understanding that there are historic um, injustices and, and wrongs that as we look forward and talk about looking at um, the identity of our community, looking at the demographics, the numbers, who has access to the University of Georgia, that we have to recognize that history. We have to know and understand that history. And that is something we're always um, aware of, as we often talk about historically underrepresented um, individuals at the University of Georgia. If you're just joining us, I'm in conversation with Dr. Michelle Cook, Vice Provost for Diversity and Inclusion and Strategic University Initiatives at UGA. And we're talking about the university's five-year, 11-step DEI plan. With you as a co-chair and as provost and in the role that you play at UGA, in developing this plan, you won't get any pushback. And do you have to get approval from the board or the regents or anyone, trustees? 
Um, and actually, you know, as I said, I feel like we're in a fortunate position because we were, the charge from the president was for this committee of 21 people representing students, faculty, staff, and the community and alumni, um, that we were charged with actually coming forward with the goals. And so we have had communication with senior leadership, with the president, the provost, with deans and vice presidents around the goals, not for approval, because um, that wasn't the environment. Fortunately, we weren't, in, we weren't operating in an environment where we felt that we had to have approval, but for feedback, and I would say really to help us hone them. And we we received feedback that with the feedback that we received were not directives, but were like these are things you should consider. And for the most part, we found them found them to be things that would only um, really support the plan and make the plan stronger. I feel that in some of the initiatives and some of the goals that we have in the plan that they're very strong, and we did we have not received any pushback or censoring if you will around those from leadership. So let's start with the inclusive excellence priority number one. And you all are starting with students building an inclusive living learning environment that supports access and success for diverse students. Mm -hmm. So if you can, for our listening audience, give us a, a few of those, I guess, metrics that you all want to use to achieve that. And thank you, because this is an area where I do feel that we are just kind of putting it out there. Our first goal under this priority is to increase the enrollment of underrepresented students at the undergraduate and graduate levels. Basically, we're, we're acknowledging that the University of Georgia, in terms of our student population, needs to be more diverse. We recognize um, that in terms of all that we do. And so that is one of our, that's, we wanted that to be the first goal, to be stated very specifically in that. But, you know, so, uh, but to support that, there are other goals, such as our the second goal, to increase need-based student financial aid and scholarship. We recognize that for so many students that the, you know, across demographics, but definitely in those underrepresented demographics around race and ethnicity, first generation, socioeconomic, rural students, particularly in the state of Georgia, that financial need is, is really, really important. And then we want to expand resources to promote um, inclusive learning environments, because we feel that that that's really important that not only do you have that access, okay, so I can apply to the University of Georgia and I can get accepted and I can go. When I get there, what's the environment? We're not just trying to, this is not just a numbers game of getting folks in the door to say, oh, look, our numbers are up, but what type of environment are they walking in? Do we, are we as an institution providing the infrastructure so that these individuals can be successful? And then in inclusive excellence priority two, now you're moving to recruiting and retaining a diverse workforce. And you also say to advance your mission in the 21st century. If you had to assess now in terms of, let's just start with the professors and, and instructors and all the educators. Uh, is it okay? Needs improvement? Fairly good? Terrible? How would you assess it? That's a great question because, you know, if you compare us to similar institutions in terms of research one institutions, land grant institutions across the country, we're right on par in terms of the percentages of, let's say African-American and Hispanic, um, Latinx and Asian um, faculty. But we don't think that that's good enough. Uh, you know, so that's great. That's, you know, so you feel like, okay, we're not doing anything terrible but in terms of who we are as an institution, where we're situated in the state of Georgia and cons considering the demographics for the state of Georgia and considering where we wanna be as an institution, we feel that we are good, but we can definitely do much better. So we um, are having a lot of our initiatives that come out of this um, inclusive excellence priority are to increase those numbers. And we started with that same, that first goal in this area was to increase the numbers of underrepresented faculty, staff, postdoctorate fellows, graduate assistants and student workers. We just simply need to increase the numbers in terms of that representation. And we're looking at this, not just in terms of, again, getting numbers in the door, but where are these people located? Are they in the lower tier um, categories on campus? Is that where all our diversity is in terms of our staff or you know do we have diversity in terms of our deans our vice presidents our department heads because I, we need to have local leadership that's diverse because that's where people live you know it's great that I'm an African-American woman as vice provost but most people don't engage with me you know on a daily basis they're engaging with their the managers department heads are those people to, are, do we have diversity there so that people are experiencing this diversity and support of the DEI in the places where they live. And then your inclusive excellence priority number three, 
talks about expanding partnerships and outreach to strengthen diverse communities. Yes, we are, uh, you know, we're a land grant institution. We have a strong public service and outreach um, perspective and numerous initiatives across the state of Georgia, the region and the world, but definitely in the state of Georgia. And so this is really important for us, not just all across Georgia, but even in Athens-Clarke County, where the University of Georgia is situated. What type of job are we doing in terms of our partnerships? What we don't want to do, and this is a lot of conversation came out of this, um, um, honestly, in our focus focus groups, which we did over 40 focus groups um, to come up to develop this plan, was that we don't want to go into communities and say, hey, we're here to save you. We are the University of Georgia. We're going to come and solve all, tell you what your problems are and solve your problems. That's not our perspective. We need to, what are we doing to go into communities and say, hey, we want to be a partner and to listen first to learn, and then to see how we can be of assistance. And so that's really the goal around that third inclusive excellence priority. How can we do that to help strengthen communities? And we were very particular, I should say, in that language to help strengthen, um, recognizing that these, these communities are doing, doing what they're doing with on their, their own. They, you know, we, we're not coming in as the, as, the, as the academic savior, but we're coming in to help strengthen what they're already doing and to help perhaps contribute to solutions in diverse communities. And Dr. Cook, uh, finally, as we wrap up and going back to that question I asked earlier, what does an effective and actual DEI plan look like? Based on everything we've just talked about, and you've laid out this plan here, might this DEI plan need to change, need to be altered along the way? For UGA? Absolutely. And that's one of the things we've pushed in terms of flexibility, because what we're at the stage we're at now is as we release the plan, then the units, the schools, the college, and the major administrative units are going to be developing their own plans to support the university plan. And so folks have said, you know, well, what about in two years? What if, you know, new things erupt or we have new challenges or new opportunities that, yes, that the diversity plan is, we, we envision it to be a flexible document, a living document that can, can move, can expand, if you will, to to address any issues that may come up and that we find that we have huge success in one area then we can move on into how can we push the envelope a little bit further in that area do you need to wait till the end of the five years since this is a five-year plan then to assess it are you able to assess it along the way we're going to do annual assessments. Units will be um, reporting annually um, on their, their success on their individual plans, and we'll be co collating that into an institutional annual report on the diversity and inclusive excellence plan. Because yes, we can't wait five years. You know, these things are happening in real time, and we've got to be responsive to the needs of our University of Georgia community. I want to end with this question because when I was looking doing my research and I watched a lot of TED talks, <laughs> some people talked about there's too much focus on the D in DEI and not enough on the E. And some people said, well, if you have the D and the E, you don't need the I. Some people said, well, it's time we get rid of the DEI and move to something else. This whole DEI movement and, and space that we're in now through your lens, this is your personal reflection that if it's being enacted in little bitty pockets throughout the different sectors, that they, it can really um, lead to some actionable outcome for the entire nation. You look at, for example, I just did an interview with a police chief about mm -hmm. community policing in communities of color. You see DEI being this attribute that can really move this nation forward when it comes to you know, when we talk about racism and all the other isms. I absolutely do. And I think that what we have to do, though, is to make sure that when you talk about flexibility, that we have flexibility in our understandings of DEI and recognize that people are coming to this conversation from so many different places and not just, you know, talking about people, um, white people or, you know, any specific co um, community, but everyone has is coming to this conversation from a different place. And if we can, as a, as a society, be flexible to say everybody has a part in this conversation. Everyone has a role to play, whether it's intentional or unintentional. You're playing a role in terms of the DEI work in your community, in your workplace, in your school, in your church, in your synagogue, in your place of worship, wherever that, whatever that those spaces are for you. And if we can do that and have conversations. Oh, man. 
and have open conversations, then we can definitely um, make a huge difference. It's a long game, though. I will say, Scott, it is a long game. It, this is not something that's going to, you know, we're going to wrap up and put a nice bow on in the next 12 to 18 months as a society. But if we can be committed to, we can do better. And, you know, kind of sometimes it's easy to start at this simple phrases. Can we all agree that as a society, we can do better? And if we start there and then we can begin to investigate in terms of how each of us and how institutionally, how organizationally, how politically, how socially we can do better. And I think that we can make a difference. Dr. Michelle Cook, Vice Provost for Diversity and Inclusion and Strategic University Initiatives at UGA and the co-chair for UGA's Diversity and Inclusive Excellence Planning Committee. Dr. Cook, good conversation. Thank you so much for taking the time. I really appreciate it. Now, you're not going to do a, a TED Talk and be one of those people that I'm going to talk about in a few months from now, are you? Probably not. <laughs> Thank you, though. Thank you so much, Dr. Cook. I really appreciate it. Thank you. Look continues now here on 90.1 WABE Atlanta's Choice for NPR. I'm Rose Scott. The initiative, Advancing the Black and Blue Partnership. This nonprofit organization was founded by Howard University alum in the summer of 2020 following the death of George Floyd. And by the group's own definition, it seeks, quote, systemic change in community police relations through effective community policing. We're going to take that mission a little further. I'm joined now by Stoney Mathis, Chief of Police in the city of Fairburn, Georgia, and the Executive Director of the initiative, Nadine Jones. Thank you both for taking the time. I really appreciate it. Thank you, ma'am. Thank you. I want to begin with this question by definition because for some people it's problematic, for others it's too vague or it's too broad. When we talk about effective community policing, How do you define that? And Chief, I'll start with you, Chief Mathis. Well, um, when we started this program, Nadine and Miss Emma asked me that question, what is community policing? And uh, there's no panacea to community policing. There's There's a bunch of programs out there that police chiefs and police departments do to kind of build relationships with the community. And they could be just any type of program. But what we found out is it doesn't matter what police departments do, most police chiefs think they do community policing. And a lot of that is just not effective because they're not reaching the communities that they serve. So effective community policing is when police chiefs are putting programs and initiatives together that's actually reaching the communities that they're serving. Nadine Jones, I'll give you a chance to weigh in. How do you define then community policing? But I noticed that the chief said effective community policing. Effective community policing. So exactly what Chief Stoney just said. Um, the, 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 the key point in what he just said is how do you determine what is effective? There is a, there's a lot of literature out there, a lot of wonderful police officers such as Chief Stoney who do this very well. And so what we did with the initiative, we kind of boiled it all together and created a scorecard it's called Central, which allows police agencies to, to grade and determine where they land along the community policing continuum. So it's th- it is the vehicle by which the local police departments can interact and interface with members of the community, civilian members of the community, in a proactive, positive way to create public safety. It really is just a, a, a tool by which relationships and day-to-day interactions are forged for a greater purpose, which is the common vision of safer communities. That's really all it is. Well, with this tool, with this assessment, and I don't want to call it a checklist, but with this assessment that you all would like for police departments to analyze or self 
great themselves. What's on this, this assessment? Well, we worked with a fabulous, actually, uh, Georgia company called, if I can say their name, Kaizen Analytics. Mm -hmm. They're based in Atlanta, where you are, Rose. And what we did was we created um, a weighted scorecard based on interviews with uh, Chief Stoney and others of his high caliber of community policing. And we broke it down into three main categories, officer training, organizational development, and community engagement. No one area or pillar works in isolation mm-hmm. from the other. It has to be holistic. So if you are incentivizing officers to write more tickets and you still and you want them to do community policing and be proactive, isn't that a bit incongruent, right? You want to reward and incentivize officers to engage in this type of proactive policing. So it's one of those holistic tools mm-hmm. that we have developed. Chief Mathis, when you went through this assessment for your own department. Do you mind sharing what you came up with? What was eye-opening for you? Well, actually, I was uh, with them from the very beginning. So we, I helped them come up with the kind of the scorecard. Mm-hmm. And it was just stuff that I had done in the past. There are certainly other police chiefs that do equally as good community policing initiatives. Uh, we, so we came up with the scorecard, and then I took the assessment myself. And I scored very well in the community policing side of it, but I did not score very well in the officer resilience side of it. Hmm. And um, so, Miss Dadine, what they do is not only do they come up with a scorecard to tell you where they're at, now they come up with, with ways that you can improve that scorecard over time. So since then, I've taken an officer resiliency course. So now I can teach my police officers a little bit more about officer resiliency. And if we're feeling better about ourselves, certainly we're going to treat the citizens better. Chief, can you take our listeners through what that training or what that model was like in terms of officer resiliency? Because I can hear someone saying, well, okay, Chief, but what does that mean? Take me through that. Well, one of the things that um, this class was a three-day class, train the trainer. I'm one of 25 uh, certified people in the state that can teach uh, other police officers how to go out and train people in this. Uh, One of the leading cause of death for police officers is suicide. And um, it's probably gotten more prevalent over the last years because of the stress and and stuff that they're under. And um, along with that, we're having less people apply to be police officers because of that fact. So this class kind of teaches it's a little more huggy, feely uh, type relationship with your police officers, especially as a command staff police chief, that you build a relationship with your uh, police officers, just like you do with the community. And mm-hmm. I tell people this all the time to build trust with the, with anybody. You have to build a relationship and to build a relationship. You have to spend time with people. So that's what they're promoting is 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 police officers and and command staff members and citizens spending more time with each other to build that trust. Chief, as then the trainer, what was some of the feedback, if you can share from your officers? Did some have concerns? Did some thought out say, you know what, this does not apply when we're out in the community or we're in a situation where it is tense or I, as an officer, have got to make a split decision. Does that really help them in that type of scenario? Yes, it should. Um, Now, it's very difficult. Some of these police officers have been trained from the very beginning. When I got when I first got into law enforcement, we had a sergeant come into roll call. He said, I don't want you to say how many tickets you can write today and how many people you can take to jail. So that's the mindset of a lot of these uh, officers that I have today. So we've got to change the culture of that. And if part of it is teaching officers about officer resilience, part of it is teaching officers how how we talk to citizens. All those things combined will make a better rounded police officer. We've got to get away from that mindset that we take everybody to jail and we write everybody tickets because there's a difference between the, the, the color of the law and the letter of the law and the spirit of the law. Nadine, you hear what Chief Mathis is saying. I, I'm curious what other feedback you all have received from and you don't have to mention the department unless you want to. But what has been the feedback you all received from those departments that have either taken the assessment and maybe have some issues or concerns. What have you all been hearing? The the scoring is remarkably um, consistent in terms of trending. Not every agency scores as high as Chief Stoney's agency did, but in terms of the drop-off when it comes to officer wellness, it is consistent across each and every agency that has completed the scorecard to date. 
And um, for that reason, we um, partnered with an organization, LRN, of mm-hmm. course. And um, LRN is an ethics and corporate platform e-learning provider. And all of the founders of the initiative, we are corporate attorneys by trade and so and with a compliance background. So we, we incorporated this knowledge of how you infiltrate culture with policies and we built out a mindfulness tool. And it really is just to educate, it's a mindfulness tool for law enforcement. So mm-hmm. it's just to educate officers in terms of what's going on in your brain. There's nothing wrong with you. You are not defective. We noticed a lot of resistance to any type of conversation about wellness. I, I'm even hesitant to use the word because it implies that they are unwell. Mm-hmm. And so we just boiled it down to brain science. And when you are dysregulated and we educate them, what's going on in your body? Are you grinding your teeth at night? Is there uncontrollable anger? Is there weeping? Is you know? And then we provide them with techniques of how to get back into their window of tolerance. Just simple breathing techniques right there in the module with the hope that it will encourage them, like when they feel better, to do it again. But there is still pushback. And I've heard from different chiefs um, they have bought in, they see the value mm-hmm. and need help in getting, for lack of a better word, the rank and file mm-hmm. to buy in. So this is not an area where your authority alone can change culture. And we know this from the corporate world in compliance. If the CEO says, okay, everybody just comply with the code of conduct policy, no bribing, no price fixing, you know, mm-hmm. that's not how human beings work. Sure. You actually have to educate and teach and infiltrate it into day-to-day um, activities and make it alive and meaningful. So that's where we are right now. If you're just joining us, I'm in conversation with Police Chief Stoney Mathis from the city of Fairburn, Georgia, and Nadine Jones, Executive Director of the Initiative Advancing the Black and Blue Partnership. And it's about initiatives aimed at seeking systemic change in community police relations through what they call effective community policing. Chief Mathis, let me ask you this. How critical then has it been for you to make sure you you all have been using the term to buy in, but chief for your captains and commanders, do you have to get them to quote buy in first and then it filter down? Yes. um, Changing the culture is certainly the chief's responsibility. But just like you said, I have to get the the uh, captains and the lieutenants to get buy in and and sell it to them first so they can get the troops to buy in Uh, here at Fairburn. I have 50 police officers, so it's a little easier for me to reach some of the the lower ranking officers. But I retired from the Henry County Police Department where we had 250 police officers. And it was more difficult to get some of the lower rank and file officers to buy into the community policing philosophy or a a program like the initiative. But the initiative, when when police chiefs, just like you said earlier, they have to score themselves. And if they're honest with themselves, the the initiative gives them ways that they can improve the the product uh, that they're providing the citizens. And it's all about customer service. It's not a lot different from what Nadine does in the corporate world with compliance that we as police chiefs do with the citizens. It's all about providing good quality customer service. How then do you know how effective the assessment is? And is it something that you have to gauge over time? What metrics do you use to say, okay, you know what? This is working. I've noticed this or I've noticed that in in my officers. Here's how I know that it works because I've worked as the deputy chief of Henry County, as the chief of Chattahoochee Hills in Fulton County and now Fairburn. And every place I've worked, I've put to uh, put these initiatives in place. And every place, if you're doing a good, effective community policing, your crime rate goes down. And those are the numbers that you look at every day. You look at them daily. Mm -hmm. And if your crime rate's going down, your use of forces are going down, your complaints against police officers are going down, and that metrics right there can tell you that community policing works. Nadine? Exactly. And we are tracking that in the same central tool. So we overlay a police agency's community policing score against um, publicly available data. Right now we're using the FBI's uh, uniform crime reports to track um, part one crimes, property crimes. 
And we expect to see over time a downward trend. If in fact the community policing scores keep going up, it should have an inverse impact mm -hmm. on the community, um, on the violent crimes and, and other crimes. But we were also building out a community facing tool. It's just not ready, it's in demo. We're working with Kaizen to, to build that out. And we will assess the voice of the community because at the end of the day, the founders of the initiative were civilians, were black women, mothers, um, just ordinary folks. And um, we want everyone's voice to be heard. So we will be reaching out to the community member using technology uh, to get them to, to understand not just policing because policing intersects so many other areas, mm -hmm. but we wanna understand the health or the 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 the, the well-being of the entire community, of which public safety and how they view their police officers is one component. Access to resources is a, is another one. Um, mental and physical health is yet you know an access to those resources another one. So let's see what's happening with the voice of the community. You'd be so it's interesting to see we've done some demos, and there is fear <laughs> of police or mistrust mm -hmm. in some, right? So if you start to see those types of results declining, I think it's a strong indicator. Keep doing what you're doing. You're on the right track. So that's the best way that we can think of. And, and Stoney is right. We simply brought in concepts from the corporate world and infused it here with a with willing participants from the blue community i have to give you know chief stoney and others a shout out we didn't really expect to be received by the blue but we were going in anyway mm -hmm. and we have been warmly received i have to say so. and this has all been taking place since last summer yeah since last summer it has been fast and furious when we started this conversation, both of you admitted there are different approaches, and someone even said there's a holistic approach to effective community policing. Um, each department is different. What may work in a large urban area like Atlanta may not work in Fairburn, or should it? Is that what you all are saying? Yes. Um, what a police chief, a lot of times police chiefs are hired and they go into the community and they tell the community what kind of police services they're going to get. Mm -hmm. And that's that's the wrong way to look at it. You need to meet with the community, get the community's assessment of what kind of police services do they want, because oftentimes it's not the same. Mm -hmm. Nadine, you want to add anything to that? I do want to add something because, uh, yes, policing is local. So we've got 18,000 police agencies right across the United States, and mm -hmm. each one of them can very unique in many respects. But you know what's not unique? Human beings and how we react to each other. And I'm not trying to get overly philo philosophical here, but if, you, if we take the time to engage with each other in a respectful, in a productive manner and build relationships, we end up building relationships. And some of what we want to tackle in the space of policing, it is, in my belief, undergoing a tremendous transformation, a lot of big changes. And in order to get this done in a sustainable way, I just can't see how we do that when the baseline relationships are so fractured and shattered and non-existent, quite frankly, hostile mm -hmm. in so many communities. What is the platform on which these collaborative or these changes are going to rest? So community policing, I know it's a word that's been used a lot of overused, abused in some instances, but Rose, it is just relationship building between police and local members of the community. And it's not just copy with a cop. It's something that is meaningful, something that is um, you have a common vision and a common goal, and you recognize that to reach that goal, you need the other person. You can't get there by yourself. As we wrap up, and based on what you just said, Nadine, you can't get there by yourself. We've talked about the community. We've talked about police departments. What other stakeholders should be involved in this? Oh, my goodness. Yes. Sorry to cut you off. Oh, it's okay. That's what you're supposed to do. You know, the reason why we can move so quickly is because we tapped into just a phenomenal network. So LRN gave us the mindfulness training. We brought in our own subject matter 
experts, but we collaborated with their creative and platform development expertise. And we created, I think, a wonderful tool. They did it free. Mm-hmm. Pro bono. In my in the legal world, we call that pro bono. I don't know what it's called in the in the corporate sense. And they free. committed free. Free. That's a good one. Free. Free. And at an, a level of excellence. We are working with a data analytics team, the one right there in Atlanta, Kaizen. And they're operating, I think, below cost. We are working with members of um, corporate sponsors, Microsoft, Lumina Foundation. My uh, company is Kunanagel Inc. All investing just resources in this space. So we're not all, we're never going to be police chiefs. There's only one Stony Mathis, let's say. Okay. <laughs> but we each have our own expertise and talent. And if the heart is willing to contribute into this space of policing and citizen relationships, because our hearts were liter- literally broken last year and you want to do something about it, there is an opportunity for you to bring what you have to the game and make it meaningful contribution. Absolutely. Without a doubt. Chief Mathis, I'm going to give you the last word. You've been in law enforcement for a number of years. You've been involved in all these conversations. You've seen and heard so many calls for reform, reforming how we do policing. Are we, through your lens, is this nation finally at a point where you believe there will be some effective change in how you all do what you're supposed to do, what you all pledge to do to protect the community? And so when we have these conversations about, well, we need to have more accountability, you obviously want to make sure you don't get to that, that phase of here we go again, talking about accountability and should this officer be sentenced and should this officer be charged? You want to prevent getting to that community policing, policing in communities of color, especially. And I'm going to throw this in there to de-escalating tensious moments. I know that was a lot. Um, I apologize. No, that's okay. Miss Rose, the first thing I'd like to say is that at least the conversations started. Uh, me meeting uh, Miss Nadine and Miss Emma, that wasn't by chance. This is, this is a design and this, the program that they put together truly helps organizations uh, better understand the community and come up with ways to better serve the community. In reference to um, uh, change in law enforcement, it's going to take some time. I tell you why, because the culture is so ingrained. And, and of course, even men, Miss Nadine and Miss Emma, our um, ideology may not agree on everything because I don't I don't think that there's systemic racism in law enforcement. Half my police officers are African-American in Atlanta. Half their police officers are African-American. I don't think police officers innately become race or people innately become racist just because they become a police officer. I think it's a lack of training, a lack of compassion, a lack of understanding. And in law enforcement, until we as police officers realize that and change our culture, we're going to continue to have issues like we're having today. Do you believe there is an unconscious bias then for from some officers? And let's be clear, particularly maybe there, for there's some. There's no doubt. Okay. Absolutely. There's unconscious bias. I think everybody has bias that they unconsciously portray on other people. And it could be a multitude of reasons. But here, when they talk about defunding the police, the first area that a police department would defund is training. The most important thing we do, especially today, is train our police officers how to talk to people, how to get along with people. I often tell people this. Every time we make contact with a citizen, We either make a deposit or we make a withdrawal in respect that that person has in all law enforcement, not just in Fairburn, not just in Atlanta, but all law enforcement. So my goal with community policing, uh, teaming up with the initiative is to continue to make these deposits because at some point somebody's going to make a withdrawal, maybe up in Minnesota, maybe out in California, but somebody's going to make a withdrawal. I don't want my citizens in Fairburn to think that we're all like that because we're certainly not. Chief, I want to ask you this question. Before I let you go, do you talk to new recruits? Do you talk to police academy? I guess you call them cadets. I'm not sure if that's the right word. But do you talk to those who are just entering the police academy to get a sense of who might be an officer someday in your department? What would you say to someone to think about before wanting to join any police department, before going to the academy? 
What internal self-assessment should they do? Well, actually, we do. When we start recruiting people, we try to look for a certain trait. Uh, uh, a lot of people get into law enforcement for the wrong reasons, and I think those are the ones that kind of give us all a bad name. So we look for certain traits that people have to get into law enforcement and compassion and love and passion into what this business uh, is that people do get into this business and sometimes they get into it for the wrong reasons. So if we can weed them out before they ever get into the academy, we're doing the, we're doing the profession of service and we're doing them a service because it allows them to go on to something else they may be good at. Just law enforcement may not be it. Are you able to identify some signs early on? Or yes, is there, when, what are when I interview people that a lot of people do, do things a little bit backward, backwards. They'll take an application. They'll, do, they'll spend a lot of time and money doing, doing um, uh, backgrounds. And then we do polygraph tests. We do psychological tests. We do drug tests. When, after they turn in their application, I interview them first. Because some people, they just don't innately do not need to be police officers. And they will tell you who they are. You spend about 20 minutes, 30 minutes interviewing them, they'll tell you who they are. Hmm. Wow. It's called The Initiative. Advancing the Black and Blue Partnership, the nonprofit organization was founded by Howard University alumni just this last summer following the death of George Floyd. Chief Stoney Mathis from the city of Fairburn, Georgia, executive director of the initiative, Nadine Jones. Thank you both for taking the time. I really appreciate it. Good conversation. Thank you. Ms. Rose, thank you. And that's it for this edition of Closer Look. A reminder to send us your feedback on all the conversations and features you here on the program, just send me an email, rose at wabe.org. And if you missed any of today's program, it's always online at wabe.org slash Closer Look. And of course, Closer Look weeknights at 7 p.m., as well as in our podcast. Subscribe to Closer Look wherever you like. Stay tuned to 90.1 WABE, Atlanta's choice for NPR. I'm Rose Scott. Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR. Local, state, national politics. WABE and NPR have the coverage you need. I'm Jim Burris, host of WABE's All Things Considered. Whether it's on the air at 90.1, streaming online, or connecting through our mobile app, WABE keeps you on top of election 2024 in what's sure to be a pivotal year in politics. And for candidates and ballot information, visit our election hub at wabe.org election 2024.